I'm going to say it again. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin doesn't like that. I've now made a little game out of it. He's going to eventually not bring this out and not bring me water, so that will probably not work out for me at some point. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll tell you a little bit more about myself in a second, but before I do, I just want to remind you kind of where we are right now as the body of Christ at Northland. So we're in the middle of a series on the Psalms. And it started uh, several weeks ago with Pastor Sean Cooper. And he kind of set the stage for us, giving us this framework for the Psalms uh, that he got from Brueggemann uh, of this idea of orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation. And this is such a great framework for us as we go through the Psalms together, but also through the story of Scripture itself. And then the next week, uh, John Cortinas preached for us out of Psalm 23 on this passage of I Shall Not Want, probably one of the more famous psalms in the collection of psalms. And then Pastor Matt took us through Psalm 139, Assurance and Anxiety. And then last week, Psalm 46, Strength uh, for Us in Storms. Next week, you already heard Nathan say, he's going to be preaching uh, in Psalm 57, and that'll kind of finish our first set of the psalm sermons. We'll do some more in the fall, and then we're going to go into our vision series in August that Nathan already told you about. But today, I get to take you through one of the psalms that doesn't quite fit that framework of orient, disorient, reorient. They call this the darkest psalm. Aren't you so glad you're here? You got up this morning to come in and hear the darkest psalm. It does the orienting and it does the disorienting. We'll see a little bit of how it reorients, but it's not in the way of the traditional movement of all the psalms. But what we're going to look for is, well, then why is it in Scripture? Maybe it's actually pretty important for us to have a psalm like Psalm 88 in our canon. Before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, my, about myself, because my name is Jeremy. Like I said, I've been a pastor here for almost a dozen years, which freaks some of you out because you're saying right now, I don't think I've ever seen you before. <laughs> I've had people after each of the services so far go, you really have been here for 12 years? I have. My wife and I actually helped plant the Oviedo campus with Pastor Dan Lasich and uh, a little over 10 years ago. And then we took over the campus. Dan came back here to do some work around the world for Northland. And my wife and I and our family um, were out in Oviedo for 10 years. And three years ago, we kind of celebrated the 10-year anniversary. And I felt a call into another season of ministry, which brought me back to school uh, to get a second master's in counseling. And to do that, I came here to the main campus to work with Pastor John Tardonia. And, and since then, him and I have taken over the Care Center Family and Ministries over in the Rink Building. That's Life Hope Benevolence, Financial Aid, Life Hope Child Care, uh, a partnership with single parents, um, uh, pastoral care and counseling, uh, healing and recovery ministries like divorce care and grief share and celebrate recovery. Um, and we really just kind of try to care for the leaders of those. And, and then some training work we do with leaders of groups and ministries to try and make sure they are, they're caring well for the people they have in their midst. Shepherding, we call it. Um, but before that all happened, there's a little bit of a journey I went on personally, because if you knew me a dozen years ago, as some people do, where I am in ministry and what I do now in ministry would not have made a lot of sense. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that story on our way to Psalm 88, because some of the things I learned in this personal and professional journey have actually helped me appreciate Psalm 88. 
And when Matt asked me if I'd be willing to preach during the psalm series, I said, well, Matt, if I'm, if I'm going to preach, I mean, I'm on the pastoral care and counseling team, I'm probably only going to preach out of Psalm 88, the darkest psalm. And he was like, great. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, they need to hear the power of the gospel in the darkness. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But first, let me introduce you to my family. This is a picture of my family, and we are standing in front of the Incredibles 2 poster, which who saw Incredibles 2? Yeah. You should all go see it. It's awesome. And this will make more sense afterwards. No, so here's the deal. That's my wife, Maggie, on the left. My oldest is Zoe. She's 12. My youngest, Ellery, in the middle, she's eight, and my son, Matthew, he's 11. I'm the one with sunglasses on, in case you didn't figure that out yet. And so we just went and saw Incredibles 2, and the funny thing is, Incredibles 1 came out 14 years ago, and my wife and I were dating at the time, and we went and saw it. And so some of our friends in our little circle were like, hey, you guys kind of look like Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? And we were like, oh, that's kind of funny. Maybe. So 14 years ago, that was really funny, except now we went to see it, and, and like our family literally is kind of like them, because my daughter Zoe, although she doesn't have dark hair, actually has a lot of Violet's personality traits. <laughs> and Matt, Matt is literally like Dash, literally. There's not much difference. And then Ellery, we call, she's our butterfly, and much like Jack-Jack, although Jack-Jack's a boy, Ellery, you just never know what's going to happen next. She's constantly a surprise. So we go see Incredibles 2, and at one point, Maggie and I look at each other and we're like, wow, 14 years later, I never would have imagined how much we would have fulfilled this, uh, this prophetic vision of being like Mr. and Mrs. Incredible. Well, here's the other reason I tell you that. It's not just a Disney promo. Um, when we were dating, we kind of decided to turn this into a little bit of our own cartoon. And we had a cartoon uh, that we would joking, uh, joke about with our friends, and it was called Opto Man and Melancholy Girl. Opto Man was me because I was incredibly optimistic, usually saw the glass half full and was like ready to keep going and figure it out and, and keep moving. And my wife tended to be a little bit more melancholy, melancholy. Uh, and she would see the glass kind of half empty, maybe even leaking a little and not sure we should go anywhere. And see, what's so interesting is in the beginning of our relationship, I thought she was wrong, and I was right. And she needed to just see things a little bit more optimistically. And what ended up happening, several series of events, personally and professionally, starting around year seven of our marriage. First seven years had been pretty blissful. We were living a dream we didn't even know was possible, being in ministry, a part of a great church with amazing community, this beautiful family. I was growing, something was happening inside of me. But because I only knew how to be positive, I didn't know how to tap into what was growing inside. And something was happening in our marriage. My wife needed me in a way I didn't know how to be there for her. She needed me emotionally. And all I knew how to do was kind of plug forward and charge hills and do things. I didn't know how to just be with her in her melancholiness. I've since begun to realize that I don't think she's melancholy at all. I think she's pretty realistic. And I think in many ways I was actually in denial. Because I didn't know what to do with all of these other emotions that I was beginning to feel for the first time in my life. I had a very low EQ. We all heard of IQ, intelligence quotient. In, in the counseling realm, we talk about EQ, emotional quotient. 
and emotional intelligence. I thought it was high, but it was actually really low. And what I began to learn through this series of personal and professional events I'll tell you a little bit about was that there was a whole range of emotions I didn't know how to access or allow myself to feel. Now, the reason I had developed this uh, pathology was because it was protective. I mean, I don't want to feel some of the things that I was feeling in my profession because I should be happy. I have everything that I thought I could never be experiencing in ministry was happening and in my life, in my family, and in my marriage, things were, were something was happening. I didn't know what to do about it. And then my wife's grandmother passed away. And my wife's grandmother was a big deal in her life, a uh, very parental figure for her, kind of one of those, you know, giants in your story. And when my wife's grandmother passed away, she needed to grieve. And I did not know how to let her do that. I had no idea how to grieve. What I did know was her grandma was in heaven, she loved Jesus, and we still got stuff to do. <laughs> Needless to say, that didn't go very well, right? It didn't go very well at all. And it started probably a good three to four year journey that we, in hindsight now, will call a, a hurricane in our marriage. Our counselor, Jim Cofield, who's a good friend of ours as well, um, walked us through that season, and he coined that term. He said, it's like a hurricane has gone through. First thing you need to do is find out who's alive. And that's what we needed to do. Uh, were we both alive after we had walked through what we walked through? It was my sin. It was her sin. It was other people's sin. But it was also just the brokenness of creation, our stories, the frustrations of being human in a broken world. But once we figured out we were both alive and we wanted this, we had to begin the work of building something different. And a lot of that work was for me to do because I needed to learn how to access all of the emotions of being human because I had been so afraid to let myself do so. I mean, feeling sad can sometimes feel weak and can leave you confused and unsure of what to do next. And with three little kids in a, in a church, and, and I, I didn't know how to do that. And so I had also kind of heard through the grapevine in my ministry that Christianity has subtly begun to weave in this message. You know, people have begun to believe that you're just supposed to trust in Jesus and everything's going to be good because God is good and he's got this and he's got a plan. And so it was even kind of coming from that realm as well. And so what started happening professionally, though, is I was sitting with more and more people who had jacked up broken stories like mine. And there wasn't anything I could do to fix it. There was no resolution in the present moment. And they, they were either overwhelmed with what they felt or unable to express what they felt. And so I began to find myself in these places going, okay, wait a minute, so feeling emotions is probably a big deal. I wonder if it would even lead them to connect with their spouse, with others, even with me in the room, with God. And is that maybe more important than resolution? And so I begin seeing this happening in my personal life, in my professional life. And then I eventually end up in school after thousands of hours of counseling ourselves to become a counselor because I needed to learn this language. My wife went first and she's learning this whole new language of emotions. And I wanted that too. And then it all starts to come together because it's all over scripture. It's all over scripture. God is an emotional God. The Psalms 
are, if anything, permission to be feeling people. They're poetry. They were sung oftentimes. I wanted to be into poetry. I tried so hard in college, like I, this is what would be cool. Angsty and love poetry. And I tried and I'm like okay at it, but I haven't really been able to do it that well. But music, oh man, music is a big deal in my family. Always has been. Music can make me cry. Music can move you. That's what the Psalms are. They're poetry and music meant to move us emotionally because we're actually emotional beings. And the, the, the church is supposed to be a hospital for sick people to come find others who are sick, who are all pursuing healing together. But it is so oftentimes ended up a museum for saints that when you walk through the door, you feel like, gosh, they've, they've all gotten the memo that I didn't get. Better not tell them how messed up I feel or how sad or how angry or how confused I am because they, they won't understand. But in reality, we're supposed to be a place that you come to and you cry out like the psalmist does today. And there are others who have cried out or who are willing to let you cry out there waiting for you. But here's the deal. Pain and suffering is challenging for us as human beings. We don't like it when somebody comes and just, I don't know what to do. And we're like, oh, I'll pray for you. And there's probably a group. Look in the paper. <laughs> and those are both good things to offer somebody. But there's this writer. His name's Jerome Miller. He's a philosopher. And he wrote this amazing book you've probably not bought, but you should. But once you read the title, you wouldn't. Because the title is The Way of Suffering. It doesn't really cause people to go, yes, let me pick that up. But my, some friends of ours uh, on us, we read it together as couples um, on a marriage retreat. That's not why we were on the marriage retreat, but we did that anyway. And it was so fascinating because he said there's three postures we tend to take in suffering. One posture is we stay inside of our comfort house, our comfortable house. And we yell out the door, sorry, that looks really bad. Right? And then the second posture is we come to the, to the threshold of our door with one foot in our comfort and one foot towards the person in suffering and we say, hey, got a sandwich. It could get better. God, just remember, God still loves you, but they're still way over there. Brene Brown does a good job of painting this same picture when she talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. But the third posture is the posture of one who breaks through the threshold and goes out to the one who is suffering and is with them. That's what I began to learn in my personal life and in my professional life. My wife needed me to be with her in her grief. I couldn't fix it. I can't fix it. But I could offer myself in that space with her. My clients, the congregants that come and sit with us, the, the single parents we deal with, the families that we're helping and individuals in benevolence, we can help a little bit, but we can't fix a lot of what's going on. But i tell you what we can do and what we've modeled our entire ministry after in the care center is we can be with them. We can make sure they know that we see them and we hear them and we are mourning with them, weeping with them over what's happened to them and where they are. And that withness becomes such an important key for us. In fact, it's the picture of the incarnation that we'll get to at the end of this psalm. But first, let's get to Psalm 88. Here we go. Okay, so 
One of the cool things about the Psalms, many of the times at the beginning of the Psalms, it tells us who wrote them. So if you open your Bibles to Psalm 88, we get a little introduction. It says, a petition to be saved from death, Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. So this is this little intro kind of telling us about the author, and his name is Haman. Also noticeably spelled H-E-M-A-N. And this is the fascinating thing about Haman. Very rarely do we get a picture of the author of scriptures. But after lots of study, this is what he looks like. <laughs> Haman the Ezraite. That's not true. That's He-Man, master of the universe. Childhood cartoon favorite of mine. You can take it down. I feel bad. <laughs> but I figure we're going into Psalm 88, the darkest of Psalms. We should probably laugh a little first. Enjoy. Uh, that is not Haman. But Haman was a part of the sons of Kohar, now, or Korah. One of the fascinating things, you might not remember this story, who the sons of Korah were in the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, we read that the sons of Korah are trying to stage a rebellion against Moses because they're not digging this whole wandering the desert thing. And the earth opens up and swallows the sons of Korah for their rebellion against Moses. That's pretty drastic. Soon after that, a couple uh, chapters later, we read that not all of the sons of Korah perished. So some of them survived. Now what's fascinating is the son that survived, you would think because of the rebellion and their relationship to him, God has every right to just get rid of them even if they didn't fall in the hole, they somehow escaped. That's not what happens. In fact, the sons of Korah that are remained, not only do they go back to the position that they held in the temple, which was to manage the kind of musical instruments that would be played when they were moving around with the tent, they actually get put into a higher position once they arrive in Jerusalem in the functions of the temple. Some serious grace of God uh, imagery happening there for us with the sons of Korah. So Haman is a part of the sons of Korah, highly esteemed, placed in the rites of the temple, part of this inner club of religious leaders. Make sense? Okay, second thing we know about Haman is in the book of Chronicles, Solomon's wisdom is compared to the wisdom of Haman. So he was an incredibly wise guy, and he was a part of the inner crowd. And what's fascinating is if that's true, why does he, as most commentators think, suffer like he does from leprosy? How could the righteous and those that are esteemed in the religious circles, those who are so wise, be struck down with something like leprosy? In fact, Calvin says in his commentary on the Psalms, it greatly concerns us to look upon such a distinguished servant of God, one so eminently adorned with the graces of the Holy Spirit, thus overwhelmed with so heavy a burden of afflictions as made him mournfully complain that he differed nothing from a dead man. We should rather rest assured that the Spirit of God, by the mouth of Haman, has here furnished us with a form of prayer for encouraging all the afflicted who are, as it were, on the brink of despair to come to himself. Oh, 
That's such a beautiful picture to understand the weight of this um, psalm. That this wasn't a week, this guy didn't have a bad week and write this psalm. He had lived a life like this. And yet he was still wise and esteemed that God would allow that to happen. Maybe there's some good news for us in this psalm. There's three movements in this psalm. I'm going to read the three sections. Each movement is marked by a posture of Haman, a posture towards God, a posture towards God that doesn't actually make a lot of sense considering everything else that he is saying but permission to feel what he is feeling is given. Exploration of his emotions. Part of what I learned when I went through my journey of exploring emotions is that oftentimes when I felt anger, there were actually all these other emotions under it. Betrayal, hurt, confusion, sadness. Ultimately, a lot of the time, emotion leads us to dealing with loneliness. It was through that exploring of emotion that I was able to be more connected to my own heart, to God, and to others. And that's what Haman is going to do for us in these three movements. First, verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation, Jehovah Jireh, I have tried out by day and in the night before you. I've cried out. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles. And my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength. Forsaken among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom remember, you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit. In dark places. In the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. That's some honest honest crying to God. Have you ever cried out to him like that? Have you ever let him know that there's almost no way you can believe that he is not, if doing what's happening to me, he is at least allowing it to happen? Have you ever just wanted to, how are you good right now? I don't know how you could be good in the moment I am in space and in time. And I need you to know that I'm struggling to believe that it's possible, that this is all true. Where are you? Or have you felt like maybe that wasn't okay and you didn't have permission? Because I hope if you hear anything today, it's that this psalm and a couple other places in Scripture are very clear. You do have permission to feel everything you feel being human especially when those emotions lead you to connection with your own heart, what it's really like to be you, connection with God, because Haman is still praying to God, and potentially connection to others. Because guess what? 
We're talking about Haman right now in 2018. Here's the next line. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. How does that go with the prior four or five accusations that God is the one who did these things? How do those two fit together? I think it's another picture of the way there are so many times in Scripture it seems like a paradox, but it is not. You can cry out to God and be honest about what it's like to be you. You can even let him know, I don't see how this isn't your responsibility or your fault or your at least allowance. It's your wrath. You have done this. But yet, still landing in this place of I call out to you every day, I spread out my hands to you. He goes on to ask these questions. Will you perform wonders from the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? It's this series of questions that many commentators say are a way for Haman to say, hey, if you don't show up soon, I'm going to be dead. And then there will be no way for me to praise you for your deliverance of me. How good am I going to be to you if I end like this? It's honesty with God. But verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. I love driving in the morning, sitting on my back porch in the morning, thinking like this, the day is new and maybe it's going to be truer today than it felt yesterday. It feels like that's what Haman says right here. Oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They've encompassed me all together. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Some translations say darkness is my only friend. Oh. So honest. Have you ever felt that? I have sat with people who have felt this and wondered, how can he be good if I feel this? And I've wondered with them. And I don't have a resolution. In fact, it doesn't sound like Haman has a resolution either. But he is giving us permission here. Walter Brueggemann says Psalm 88 stands as a mark of realism of biblical faith. It has a pastoral use because there are situations in which easy, cheap talk of resolution must be avoided. My heart breaks for the people who sit across from me dealing with the tragedy of their lives and they're afraid to be honest about how they feel with me because I'm a pastor. They think I'm going to throw some Jesus syrup on it and make it all better. 
and I don't. And at first I think it troubles them more, but then I think we eventually get to a place of comfort because I do offer them what I do have, which is withness. And I have hope for the gospel. I know it's true, but it's a long arc hope. It's not necessarily about our circumstances. And what we get to experience in those moments is connection with one another as we explore all of the emotions of being human. I'm going to show you a movie clip that does a little picture of this. It's from a movie called Garden State. Garden State is a great movie that your pastor did not tell you to go watch. I love giving those recommendations out to people. They don't know what to do. They're not sure if I'm testing them or what. Can they come back and admit that they went and watched the movie I told them not to go see? But it is a really good movie. Uh, Zach Braff is in it, if you know Zach Braff from Scrubs. And he's a guy named Andrew. And what he reveals in this movie is that when he was nine years old, in a fit of frustration as a boy, he pushed his mom and she tripped over a broken dishwasher and became a paraplegic. And he had to live with the shame of this injury, which his father helped him live with by letting him know that it was indefinitely his fault that his mother was like this and that their family had to deal with this. And so he did what some human beings do, which is what I did. He shut all of those emotions down because they're too much to feel. And he learned how to live pretty emotionless, kind of robotic through his life. And so fast forward at the beginning of the movie, what happens is his mother just passed away and he's going home for the funeral. And see, when he lived emotionless, he lived pretty disconnected, not connected to his family or anyone else. And so he flies home for the funeral and has this kind of epiphany that if he's going to go home and be a part of this funeral and be with his family, he wants to fully feel all of this. See, I think this is actually part of what we're getting at when we engage people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's what Haman does in Psalm 88. Fully alive means feeling all of the emotions of being alive as a human being and learning how to do it in a way that leads me to connection with myself and with God and with others. And it might have very little to do with resolution. So this is what Andrew does. He goes home for this funeral and decides he wants to be fully alive for this thing. It's a pretty crazy experience, but at one point, him and a couple of his friends wander out to a quarry that they live near and there's this huge gorge in the quarry that was nicknamed the Infinite Abyss. And he meets this guy whose job it is to protect the quarry and make sure nobody jumps in it. His name's Albert. And him and Albert have some really existential, interesting conversations about this journey that Andrew finds himself on becoming fully alive, connected with his emotions. And then Albert kind of challenges him that part of being alive means being in relationship with others. Connection. And so this is a scene after he's seen Albert. I want you to watch this and I'll come back up and explain it and then we'll be wrapping up. Hey Albert! Yeah! Good luck exploring the infinite abyss! Thank you. Hey. You too. I get the news I need on the weather report. Oh, I 
Counseling, there actually is a form of this uh, that they call uh, primal screaming. That's true. It's a way of unlocking locked up emotions. Well, the point is to unlock them so that you know what they are, what the different layers of them are, so you can name them and really be aware of what they are and connect them to your story. Ideally, in our context, connect them to God and His story and connect them to others. And resolution isn't necessarily the goal. There was no resolution for Andrew. His mother was a paraplegic because of an accident that happened when he was a boy and she was gone now. But what we have in Scripture is an invitation to believe that there's a bigger story going on and that God is big enough to handle what we're going through and that maybe He has brought us into this world to be okay and be with others as they go through what they're going through. And to somehow in all of that, hold out hope. Hope maybe against all hope. Hope that maybe doesn't really make much sense. We read in Romans 8.28, it's one of my favorite passages as a counselor, because I have, as I said, so many people come into my office and say, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And I'm always like, yes, that is absolutely true. And the first part of that verse is true. Clearly, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Or he wouldn't have to work them out. Like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We weren't meant for this, which is why it feels so awkward when we're faced with death and sin and evil and tragedy and pain. But we are allowed to exist in it that we might still have hope through it. But it might not be the hope that today things go the way I want them to go. I got three kids, right? You saw their picture. I'm their dad. I want them to talk to me about everything. I want them to bring all the things they want and what they're curious about, the questions they have. I want them to bring their happiness, their pain and suffering. I want them to bring all of it to me. It doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about a lot of it. it doesn't mean I'm going to give them everything they want and need. I'm after the relationship with them. I want them to know that I want to be with them as they go through their lives. And I think that's the same invitation we get from the Father. It's the same invitation Haman is giving us. And I think it's the same invitation of the bigger arc story of Scripture. Romans 4.18 tells us that Abraham had hope against hope. Why did he have hope against hope? Because Abraham was old, y'all. He didn't have a kid yet. Like, that was happening. I don't know if any of y'all are as old as Abraham was when he still didn't have kids. And God told him, you were going to have children. 
He was losing hope, but yet he still had hope. It's hope against hope. And then I think the best picture of this is Matthew 27, verse 46. Our Savior is nailed to a tree. And at the ninth hour, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the God-man crying that out. He's a part of the Trinity, and yet he is still crying out, why have you forsaken me? I think maybe that's permission for us. It's permission that when God chose to make himself like man in Jesus through the incarnation, he was willing to feel what it was like to be us in a broken world. And Jesus felt. He flipped tables. He made whips when things that he was passionate about were violated, like the temple. He played with little children. He delighted in the Father's uh, uh, enjoyment of him. He had fun at a wedding. He felt a lot, and he bled through his sweat in the garden, asking, hey, if there's any way around this, I'd be cool with it. And we read it so quickly that he immediately was like, but not my will be done. Your will be done. I don't know that it was like that. I think maybe there were some long gasps and pauses if he was sweating blood. And maybe he trembled as he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Because not too long after it, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt forsaken? I have sat with people who felt forsaken. And if in that moment I said, Jesus paid it all, don't sweat it, it's all going to work out, they would walk away and I would probably never see them again. Because it's not resolution they're actually after. It's relationship. It's wanting to know that there are other human beings in this world who hope against hope. And not only does Jesus say, why have you forsaken me? Don't forget, after he says that, you know what happened, right? He died. He died. And all of his disciples were not there. You know who was there? The women that followed him. That's interesting. And then John tells us that he was there, but John is telling us he was there. John also told us he was faster than Peter, which I always think is funny, and that he was the one that Jesus loved the most. I can't wait to get there and ask about that when we get to heaven. But no one was there. Jesus dies alone, deserted, betrayed. And then they take his limp body down off of that wood and put it in a tomb and roll across a stone and it's Friday afternoon, and it's Friday evening. And you know those disciples felt some emotion. They might have even been saying things like, come on, like, they've surrounded me like water all day long. They've encompassed me all together. Why do you hide your face from us? Why do you reject us? I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. They might have said words just like this. Saturday morning they wake up and they, they think it was all a bad dream and realize it wasn't. He's still dead. See, we kind of read it really quickly, right? Good Friday, he died. He was, yeah. 
And then we should. Like the resurrection's a really big deal. But part of the story was Friday night and Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and Saturday night. And they go to bed Saturday night thinking, ugh. I mean, they're all hiding in an upper room, terrified. We saw him walk on water. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Like he was, wait, I don't understand what happened. God's plan is not my plan. My need for resolution out of what I'm going through is not God's need for resolution because he is a long arc game God. And his promises are always being accomplished. They just don't always make sense to us. And what I hope you hear today is that we have permission to be honest about that. Because Haman was honest. I think Jesus was honest. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon, upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Are we allowing our pain to be a place of being alive? And do we feel safe here amongst the body and in the church to be alive in our pain? Dan Allender and Tremper Longman have written a bunch of books that have changed my wife and I's marriage, our life, and are a big part of our counseling. Um, they wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul, which kind of works through the human emotions and uses the book of Psalms as the way of doing that. And when he talks about Psalm 88, he says that Psalm 88 and other grief psalms model, model to us frank, brutally honest conversations with God. And it gets messy, as does life. But the psalmist convicts us of our tendency to sweep all our ugly emotions towards God and ourselves under the rug. Instead, by example, Haman invites us to open ourselves to him and the good news of the Psalms is that we can. Despair is the absence of hope, yet this emotion can open the heart to grasp something about hope that transcends human understanding. Despair can open the heart to taste hope in God. The question is, do we believe in God because of what we think he can do for us in our present moment? Or do we believe in God because of what he has in fact already done and what he has promised to finish, to complete in this long arc of the redemption of the cosmos? See, his promises are rooted in his covenant to himself. By himself, through himself, and for himself. And you and I, by the grace of God, get to be a part of that promise being fulfilled. It's why we have these little breadcrumbs of beauty and truth and justice and love, even in the midst of a broken creation, to beckon us on that there's more, there's more. Come, believe there's more. Streams in the Desert is a, a collection of writings 
Um, and my friend John Tardoni, the other pastor in the Care Center, when I was preparing for this sermon, he sent me this Streams in the Desert he had just read by uh, a writer, George Matheson, who was a theologian, Scottish theologian, who went blind at the age of 20. Um, but he continued on in his study of the Word and, and his dedication to the church. And he wrote, it is Job in the tempest, right? Because all of these stories, Job, Haman, Jesus dying on the cross. There's this crying out to God, where are you? How can you be good in this? It is Job in the tempest. It is Abraham on the road to Moriah. It is Moses in the desert of Midian. It is the son of man in the garden of Gethsemane. There is no patience so hard as that which endures as seeing him who is invisible. Let me say that sentence again. No patience so hard as that which endures as seeing him who is invisible. It is the waiting for hope. He says, I shall reach the climax of strength when I have learned to wait for hope. I pray that that is what we hear in this message today. I'm going to call the worship team to come out, and we're going to sing a song about that kind of hope, the kind of hope that admits, hey, it's dark right now, and I want to believe your light is coming, but it's hard to believe it's coming right now. But I'm going to sing out to you anyway, because I believe in your long arc game, God. And then I'm going to come back and give us a benediction. Here's some of the words from the song that I want you to participate with us as you hear them. Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Your name is a light. The shadows cannot deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is alive forever. This psalm, this message, and those that you've heard uh, in prior weeks, and as we move into these vision messages, they're invitations to become alive, fully alive, not some version of yourself here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, fully alive where you are with each other, believing when it's hard to believe. So would you please stand and sing this song with us?